Let's see more of the strength and kindness of Jesus as we turn to John 21. John 21, verses 1 through 14. As you turn there, I warn you that what I'm about to read is an epilogue. An epilogue. We don't use those very much anymore. For those of you who don't read classic works of literature and wouldn't be familiar with an epilogue, think of it as a cutscene at the end of a movie. If you've ever been at the theater and everybody's sitting there looking at the credits and you're wondering, what is going on? There's probably some other little snippet of the movie still to come. It's an epilogue. It lets you know either like how the characters continued after the conflict was settled, uh, or it follows up on some loose ends that have yet to be tied. Herein we read the inspired epilogue of the Gospel of John, only its first half today. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they called nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for the work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread And gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The essence of this gospel having already been established, John inserts an epilogue. He ties up those those loose ends. And we kind of have to ask ourselves then, well, um, what are the loose ends? 
what's unresolved. You've reached the end of, of John chapter 20, and you're thinking, Grand Slam. He's walking the bases. Like, what else is there? There's the climactic confession of Thomas saying that this Jesus is my Lord and my God. John sums it up and says, all right, I want you guys to believe in this way as well. Mic drop, walk off the stage, receive the applause. But there's a couple of things outstanding. There's still a couple of things that are, that are unresolved. And one is um, confirmation. Resurrection was so unheard of. Bodily resurrection was so unheard of. John decides, you know what, I don't want anybody to think that this was just like the after weeks sorrow of an, an event, a traumatic event. I'm going to give you one more instance. I'm going to give you one more instance of the resurrected Lord appearing to his disciples. That's really what this passage is about. There's a little inclusio, some bracketing going on. You see it in verse 1, and you see it down in verse 14. It's about the appearance of Christ. He says, it happened in this way. And then he finishes and says, hey, this was the third appearance of Christ. He wants you to know they actually saw him, and this time it was not in Jerusalem. It was in Galilee. Like he's reaffirming the resurrected Jesus. This is... Uh, a big deal. Uh, but John doesn't just tell us that Jesus showed up again, that he appeared, but he says he did it in this way. Look, just look at your, your Bible. It says, while he was by the, the Sea of Tiberias, he revealed himself in this way. He repeats it. He wants you to see not just that he revealed himself, but that he did it in a certain way. So there's another, it's not just about the resurrection confirmation, there's another loose end that needs to be tied up for John in particular, and that is uh, continuation. The gospel still needed some confirmation, one more resurrection appearance, he thought three would do the trick, even though there were more. But it also, there was this, this struggle with uh, what I'm calling continuation, and that is this, the realization of the disciples' participation in Jesus' ongoing plan. Like, is this really so? Like, are these 11 guys who abandoned Jesus at the end of his life, their leader in Jesus' absence, Peter, having forsaken him three times, like, is that still really the plan of God to work through them? Like, is Jesus really going to be able to continue his ministry when he's not actively with them all the time because the pressure was real? I mean, you saw it at the end of John 20. Remember the first time that he showed up to the disciples? He, he breathed on them or breathed in front of them and actually said, receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to need it for this mission. And that is representing me and reconciling people to the Father through me in my absence. That plan is still on the table. You guys are on the hook. And anybody who follows Jesus, you're committing under his lordship to be involved in the same thing. And you're naturally wondering, like we asked ourselves at the beginning of this service today, who's sufficient for these things? I don't know. I don't know if I, I don't have, I don't know if I have what it takes to actually be able to pull this off. If I'm going to have to follow Jesus as Lord and He's expecting me to be this like ambassador of reconciliation, like I just don't know that I have what it takes. 
And so Jesus not only reveals himself, but he reveals himself in a certain way. And it doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure out the way that Jesus is actually being revealed. He says, I'm a provider. I'm the one who meets needs. The resurrected Lord here is revealed as the generous provider of his people to satisfy and to calm their angst in potentially living for him. This is to calm you. This is to assure you that even though you follow a risen Lord whom you cannot see, even though he is not immediately present with you, he will provide for his people in the mission that he has given them. I'm going to tell you the story under three headings. But I want you to listen out for the significance. Be listening out for how Jesus provides. I'll give you the answers at the end, don't worry. But I'll tell you the story, then we'll unpack the significance. The story unfolds under just three simple headings. It's not hard to follow. There's the problem, the presence, not presence like Christmas, the presence, the provision. Note the problem in verses 1 through 3. In that first verse, you note that uh, the scene has changed. It says that he revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And just in case you're wondering, that's none other than the Sea of Galilee. You're like, well, why is it called the Sea of Tiberias? Well, John is writing to uh, a Greco-Roman audience that doesn't necessarily live in Jerusalem, and they go by the Roman names. Uh, the, the Romans called it the Sea of Tiberias because that was the capital city on the north side of the lake. And so this is that normal, like, hunting, playing, fishing, living grounds of the disciples. They were in Jerusalem. That was not their home sphere. And they're now back up where Jesus actually first revealed himself to them. And it's there that he decides to reveal himself to them again, the text says. And note that he is, um, there, there's a pretty active group of guys here. We've got Simon Peter, you know, their kind of leader-in-chief. We've seen him as the impetuous one, the one that is taking charge often. You even see it in this story. Thomas, called the twin. Now, again, he's listing these names off to you for historical verification. He's saying, I've introduced all these guys to you before. I've told you where they're from. If you want to find out more about them, you can. He's already told us Peter's background in John chapter 1. He told us Thomas's background a little bit in the last chapter. He's the skeptical one. He's the realist. He's the, the glass half-empty guy. I mean, this isn't some naive group of men. On top of that, you've got um, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. We learned of him earlier in the gospel, and he was initially skeptical, but then he confessed Christ. As Lord, there's the sons of Zebedee, translated James and John. You know those guys. They were actually so well-known in the early church that they didn't even need to say James and John, just the sons of Zebedee got it covered. And then uh, there's two other disciples uh, who were there, and they're not named. And the curious among us would ask, well, why didn't you name those guys? Because he hasn't introduced those guys. They're not important to the story. He's trying to give you 
names that you would recognize. It's a historical account here. These are things, people that you've already been exposed to up to this point. There's seven disciples, if you do the counting here, interestingly. But I'm not a numerologist, so I'm not going to make a big deal out of that. But there's, there's a good number of guys. And they're out, and, and, and it just basically says, there's nothing too controversial here. They're together, you know, they're, they're in Galilee, they're, they're, they're where actually Jesus told them that they should be, according to the other Gospels. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Now, beware, friends, for those of you who have been in the church for a long time, we try to start sometimes reading things into the text to make it a little more spicy and interesting. Um, th- there's nothing spicy here about Peter going fishing. Some people are like, oh, what a rebel. I can't believe that he would go fishing when Jesus called him to be an apostle. You know what Jesus called him to do? To wait for him in Galilee and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon him, and that's when their ministry would start. The guy is doing exactly what he was commanded to do. And I don't know about you, but when you're waiting around, like you probably have a diversion of some kind. Probably. Peter was a fisherman by trade. The dude wants to go fishing. Give him a break. And he's a leader. They're sitting around waiting for Jesus, and it says, hey, I'm going fishing, and the other guys are like, okay, we'll go with you, because it's not a solo sport. <laughs> not in that particular culture. This is so different than recreational fishing today. I just want to say this, like heads up. Peter's probably not fishing for fun. He's probably fishing for food, or at least the money to buy the food. I know several here uh, love the idea of being like the career fisherman, and, uh, but you got it easy. I mean, when your boat goes 98 miles per hour to like the nearest, you know, like a fishing hole, I mean, like, it, and, and you're, you're, you can just cast and reel and cast and reel. I know it's hard, but this is real hard. I mean, they have to actually paddle a 30-foot boat out into the middle of a breezy sea. They have no outboard motor. They are the motor. And then on top of that, they don't have fishing poles. They have nets that could weigh anywhere between 30 and 50 pounds before the water actually gets on them. It's called sane fishing. They still do this today. You actually take a net, and it's got cork in some parts of it and lead at the other parts of it with a rope around the bottom, and you try to like cast that thing out there and think this is a huge endeavor because it's big. It's not just personal, like by the shore kind of thing. And these guys are trying to coordinate an effort. Can you imagine this? If you've ever been paddle boarding, you know, like the core strength it takes just to like stand. Can you imagine like standing on a boat and having to cast something 50 pounds off and then like let it sink? And then you start pulling in the rope so that it like gathers around the bottom. And now you're trying to pull this wet, heavy thing on top of you all night long. That is not fun, friends. This guy's looking for some food. He needs some finances. Like, this isn't just, oh, I'm going fishing, I'm giving up on Jesus. Like, he's desperate they go out, and it says in, in verse 3, as if that doesn't sound miserable enough, it says they, they went out and got in the boat, but that night, they, so they do it at night, that stinks, they caught nothing. Uh, the Greek word for nothing here, you're going to love this. 
Nothing. Now, I've gone fishing in my day, and I know what it is to catch nothing. And I only go for a couple hours. Can you imagine the frustration? Especially as a career fisherman, of having gone out at the best time, night traditionally was the best time to fish, especially in the Sea of Galilee. The labor was backbreaking, the expectations were likely high. It's kind of like a um, slot machine. It's this thing called the sunk cost fallacy. Somebody puts the, the quarter in and they don't get anything. And they're like, oh, well, I can get another quarter in. For those of you who think that's wrong, um, those little machines in the arcade with all the coins like tipping over the edge and you get the tickets, you know, like if it sweeps the coins over. And you, like you saw your quarter go down there and you're like, oh, it's so close. And then you're like, you put another quarter in, oh, it's like so close. And now you're like, man, I've already got $5 into this thing. I want the, the tickets. Like, that's what they keep doing. Like, at what point in the fishing endeavor do you say, all right, boys, we're calling that night. We're going home. Like, they just kept throwing the net. And they're like, man, that took so much effort to get that net back up. You know, let's just, let's, let's throw another one in there. And then they do it again, and they do it again, and they do it again, till they run out of, of daylight. I mean, till they run out of night. I mean, they're just, they're, they're exhausted. They're frustrated. And, um, and to this injury comes insult. There's this know-it-all on the shore. You know that guy. Who asks them if they caught anything. They don't know it's Jesus, it's dawn, it's not fully light. The text has made that clear. They're a hundred yards away. And so we move from the problem to the presence. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? He had to yell it. They answered him, no, I can just hear the grumpy nose. Like, who is this guy? He could probably see we don't have any fish. What Jesus says here is interesting. He's, he's, he's not being condescending. Um, he's not calling them like children. You know, like you neophytes and fishing, you don't have a clue what's going on. He's just saying, it's like saying lads or <laughs> to modernize bros, you know, like, Dudes, you caught anything? You know, and the expectation in Jesus' question is negative. Like, it's been a rough night, hasn't it, basically? And um, they, they answer him, no, no, we don't. And, uh, and then he gets uh, smart. He says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, this advice is almost humiliating. Um, the, the boat size, this is of interest, I think. They found one. They, they found one of these old fishing boats in the Sea of Galilee. You can see it there today. It's, it's 27 feet long. It's seven and a half feet wide. So catch me here. The difference is seven and a half feet. To cast it from one side to the other, they're going to have to re-rig the entire net system that they had on the one side, move it over to the other side, and do the same thing for seven and a half feet worth of a difference. 
It seems small. It seems insignificant. But, but, there, there's something going on here. Because they actually obey. I know what I would be thinking, like, get lost. But they actually obey for a couple reasons. Um, one is the shoal could actually be better seen from the shore than in the boat sometimes. Oh, new term, by the way, for me. Non-fishermen in the room, do you know what a shoal is? It is a stationary school of fish. So they shoal when they're all just sitting there together. They school when they're moving. Isn't that fancy? The shoal could be better seen from the shore. So they're thinking like, okay, well, maybe he sees something. Maybe they're just trying to be respectful. To me, it's a mini miracle in and of itself that they follow this person's advice. But through their obedience, something even more notable comes. Look at the second half of verse 6. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. I mean, get the picture here. They throw out that, that same net. They, they wait for the, the weights to descend to the bottom. They begin to pull things back in again. They, they're drawing the net in. And, and, and you get this feeling, and I've had this one even with the rod and reel, like where you're like, this is the fish of a lifetime. And it's a root. They're probably thinking like, We got the thing stuck on a rock. Awesome. But then they realize as they continue to pull that it's moving ever so slightly, and they can actually begin to see the rumbling of the water underneath, and they're realizing, this ain't no rock. These are fish. And they can't, even with a seven and a half foot wide boat, they cannot pull it in. I would love for an engineer in here to figure that out for me. Like, how much did that have to weigh? For them not to be able to pull the thing safely in. We find out the exact number in a moment, but this is, this is the fascinating part because they still don't know that it's Jesus, but something amazing is going to happen. John, the beloved disciple, the one who is writing here, he makes the connection at this moment. He figures it out. He figures out who this guy is because they have been in this position before. Luke 5, no need for you to turn there. But that was a formative moment for them in their lives. I want you to understand this, guys. This is like, this is when the biggest group of the disciples like first realized that Jesus is indeed somebody other than just some would-be Galilean rabbi. They would remember that first time of that fish catch like somebody remembers their first kiss. This was when they were like introduced intimately to Jesus. And so immediately John's like, we've been in this position before. I know, I've, I've heard that command and I've seen these results. And he says to Peter, it's the Lord. I just want to pause here and say, you want to make this more vivid in your mind? You want to cry? If your conscience will allow it. There's a series on Netflix that shall remain unnamed. That on the fourth episode of the first season, it captures this Luke 5 scene, and it will make you cry. You would just want to see historically like what it was like for them to pull those nets in. It's an amazing 
feature. And it's, it's there that Peter confesses. That's the first time Peter confesses, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. You are the Lord. You're the Christ. I mean, again, like the memories are coming back. So Peter, like he just, he, he just loses his mind here. And, and I want you to notice what happens. It says in the text that the disciple says to Peter in verse 7, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, catch this, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for the work and threw himself into the sea. I don't know if you remember this or not, but Peter can't swim. Most people couldn't. But the, the crazier thing is, I mean, if you can't swim, that's one thing. But what do you do? Let's just, let me ask you, if you've ever seen like a kid fall in a pool or you've had to be, you know, like the hero in that moment, like what's the first thing you're doing? You're like, Phew. you're taking stuff off. And what's Peter doing? He's putting stuff on. Why? He's naked. Probably not totally, but it makes sense. This is nothing crude. Like the guy is like sweating it out all night long. Your outer coat was kind of like, almost like a sport coat. It was just something that was like more decorative than functional. So you kind of lay it to the side and you're just basically fishing in your underwear. It's like a guy like taking his shirt off when he's like weeding in the garden. It's not a big deal. And what he does here is he grabs the coat and puts it on. And I don't think this is just because he's impulsive. I kind of wonder, I just wonder, if he was still in some way ashamed. Like he didn't want to, he knew it's the Lord and he's like, I don't care if my coat gets wet. I, I don't want, I want to be covered. And he abandons the other guys, verse 8. It says, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. I love that. So now they're down a man, and they have to drag this unknown weight behind them. (laughs) It says, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards off. These are interesting historical uh, details, but I, I don't want you to miss what's really going down here. He's back. The risen Jesus is back. They get that he has returned to them. Their problem has been remedied through his presence. Their problem has been remedied through his presence. But not only is he present, but he provides. We move from the presence to the provision, the last scene. And don't forget here to listen out for how the risen Lord provides. This is where you want to take your own notes. Let's read verses 9 through 11. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Man, what a welcome sight for a bunch of starving, cold, wet fishermen. A warm fire 
I'll just note this today. I'll bring it up again next week. But it's a charcoal fire that may be of interest to you. He's cooked and prepared a meal fresh for them. Something else is interesting. He has proactively met their needs. But he also cooperatively meets their needs. This is crazy. Did you see in verse 10, he says, he invites them to contribute what they caught by adding it to what he's already prepared. He said, come, come and bring what, what y'all caught. It's funny, he gave them the credit for catching the fish. I mean, he's the one that like calls them to jump into the net, but he's like, hey, you know what? Yeah, y'all caught some fish too. Here, why don't y'all contribute the fish to here? Uh, and, and so that they, they get a chance to cooperate in this, and this is interesting. And, and, and so Simon Peter goes, and he like takes the initiative again. I mean, the guy's like a bull in a china shop. He is like adrenaline junkie. I mean, he's not only figured out a way to like hop and skip his way over to the shore, doggy paddle or whatever it is he had to do, but now soaking wet, he's like, just, okay, I'll get it. And he takes the lead on getting the fish off of the boat. Now, I don't know if he does this by himself. I just assume that he takes the lead and he pulls the, the fish onto the shore. And, and this is so stunning to them that, they, that they're like, We're, we got to count these things. And you know what they find? 153 of them. Very large ones, it says. Not just little minnows. Very large fish. If you ever wanted to lose about four hours of your life and never get it back, try to research why it was 153 fish. People have speculated all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm going to save you four hours. Why did they count the fish? Because they're fishermen. People count things that matter to them. One of our uh, church members had the privilege. I'm not going to tell you who it is. I want you to figure it out and it'll be a good conversation starter. One of our church members had the privilege in the last couple months of hitting a hole in one. And I think it'd be fair to say that he's a, I hope this doesn't hurt your feelings, dear sir, a medium golfer. Like, I'm a, I'm a bad golfer. This, this guy's medium. Other people are really good. Um, so it's not like you would expect him to hit a hole-in-one. If you were to ask him about that hole-in-one, I bet you he could tell you the exact yardage of the hole, what hole it was, what day it happened, how fast the wind was blowing in his face when he hit the ball. Friends, we measure what matters to us. To somebody that's not a hunter, for example, it's like, oh, I killed a, I killed a buck. But somebody who hunts wants to know, like, how many points was it? What were the dimensions? Like, we, we want the details on things that matter to us. Friends, this was, this was a means of provision. Like, this was cool. This was like the hole-in-one. This is the thing that never happens. And, and so they're, they're like, we got to count this. Furthermore, economically, you got to take it to the market and sell it. you got to tell them how many you got. So, just so you're aware, there's 153 of them. No symbolism needed. 
But it shows that he's not only providing proactively and cooperatively, but abundantly. This is way more than these guys need. They couldn't eat 153 fish if their life depended on it. But notice this, he's not only providing abundantly, he provides generously. Look at verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. How cool is this? How compassionate. Now, the resurrected Lord, the one who conquered death itself, isn't saying, all right, boys, make me breakfast. But he cleans it and cooks it and garnishes it with bread and tells them to sit by the fire while he serves them. And I love this line, and they knew it was the Lord. This is, it was beyond, this, this is just like him. This is what he had just done. The day before he died, he got down on his on his knees, and he wrapped himself with that towel, and he wiped their feet off, and he served. I mean, like, he just, he, he served his, his people. I mean, that was the kind of sovereign Lord that he was. And, and, and John ended on this note in verse 14. He says, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Not only was he risen, indeed, but he was risen and revealing himself in a certain way. How has he revealed himself? How does John portray him? What does he want you and me as his readers to find in this epilogue? He wants you to understand that the risen Lord is a provider for his people, even when he's not in the boat with them. He provides. He wants to assure them that they're going to be fine. Even when it seems like he's not around. Even when it seems like it's all going awry. Let's press this into our lives a little bit by noting now specifically those features of the resurrected Lord's provision. I asked you to try to find them on your own. Here is where I bail you out. How does the Lord the risen Lord, provide, first off, proactively. Proactively. Not reactively, proactively. He is ahead of the game. He knows our needs before we do. He is sovereign, friends, over scarcity and abundance. You know, I I really do like Benjamin Franklin. I don't have a problem with him. I mean, his theology I have a problem with, but his advice makes a lot of sense. The early bird does indeed typically get the worm. Way to go, Ben. Typically. Typically. Not always. I say this 
To every red-blooded American in the room, if you're visiting from another country, feel free to listen in. But you do not determine your own destiny. You are not responsible for your success. I know you've worked hard. I know you've labored diligently. But God is the one over and above every fruitful endeavor. Sometimes, hear this well please, the risen Lord will put his people in positions of scarcity, not because they didn't work hard, They could have worked their fingers to the bone. They could have fished all night long. And sometimes he will still put them in a position of scarcity. And it wasn't because they weren't smart enough, fast enough, or strong enough. But it was because he wanted them to be reminded that all sufficiency is ultimately in him. Do you remember the story of this in 1 Samuel chapter 1 where Hannah, godly young woman, prays and prays for, for God to provide a child for her? And, like, and she doesn't receive it. She's barren. Like something's wrong. Something's off. And what they would have naturally assumed in that culture is that she must be cursed of God in some way to experience such deficiency. And yet God puts her in a position of scarcity so as to show off his abundance. And so she goes to him praying, and God provides, and ultimately what does Hannah do? She gives all the credit to the Lord. And I want you just to hear again how she celebrates God's sovereignty over scarcity and sufficiency. Listen to this. Just hear hear the poem. I'm not just going to proof text. I want you to Enter into her praise for a moment. She praises God. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. And listen to this. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, the grave, and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy up from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world and he will guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Preach it, sister. 
Scarcity, beloved, is an opportunity to see God once again supply. Hear me, if you're feeling empty, you're feeling like you don't have enough, you're feeling like you're not contributing, I want you to know that God is proactively working in the lives of His people to point them to His abundant supply. The risen Lord supplies, not merely the hardworking farmer or follower of Jesus. God gives the increase. So I want you to know that, friends, if you're feeling insufficient in following the risen Lord, or maybe you're even contemplating following Him, and you're like, I don't know if I could live up to that. I don't know if I could walk that. I don't, I don't know that I can pull that off. You can't, but He will. He provides proactively. The Lord provides for his followers not only proactively, but also cooperatively. Here's another feature of his provision. is cooperative. This is mind-blowing to me. The risen Lord lets us in on his work. He lets us in on his work. This has been his plan from the very beginning. God lets us in. You know what it's like as a parent to try to like take on a task or a project and the kids want to help? And you're like, ugh, it'd be way easier if I just did this by myself. But they want to be involved. They want to contribute. It's like the three-year-old line. I do it. I do it. I think we all long for the same. We're like, we, we, want, to be, we want to do something. I, I, don't, I don't care if, if you're near end of life or at the beginning of it. All of us are thinking like, how do I do something? I don't want to just waste it. I want, to, I want it to count. I want it to matter. God gave us that. You know why? Because you were made in his image. Genesis 1. He made you to image him, to represent his good rule through the world. You were made for this. And guess what? Your great, 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 however many times, grandparents, they, um, they blew it. They blew it for you. When they rebelled against God, it broke your capacity to make the contribution that you wanted to make. Whereas you once had the ability, now you no longer had the ability anymore to do anything pleasing to Him. And so there's like this promise all through the Old Testament that this capacity to represent God's good rule once more would be reconciled. And yet, it's like disappointment after disappointment. You think Abraham's going to do it, and it's not him. And then you think it's going to be uh, Moses, and it certainly wasn't him. You think it's going to be the nation of Israel, and they blew it too. And then they're like, all right, we need a king on the scene. That'll really help things. And then they get Saul, disappointment. David, he started off strong, but as the old song says, he didn't last long. So long, David. And they wanted somebody who would help them, like, the, like restore them back to fruitfulness and functionality under God. And yet there would be a son. There would be a son of David, a descendant of David, who would come and enter into this problematic situation and fix it from the inside out. Like entering into our humanity as we sang earlier, writing it as so many in baptism have already confessed today through his living and remedying the penalty for that through his sacrifice on the cross, 
rising again from the dead, showing his power over the death that debilitated us from being able to serve him, and then reconnecting us to the life of God through the Spirit for all who will trust in him alone. Like the capacity to do something has been restored. We have been brought back into alignment, and now we get to do it with God. I don't think we understand that. I'm not, I'm not angry, but I do want to be emphatic. God put you here for a reason. And yes, it involves evangelism, but it also involves the evidencing of good works as a parent and as a grandparent and as a child and as a student and as an employee and as a researcher and as a business owner. Like, you're still, like, you're still, he's he's inviting you to add the fish that he enabled you to catch to his fire and enjoy a meal. He's the one that enables it. He's the one that sustains it. Did you notice that little note in there that the nets didn't break even though there were so many fish? Like, he's doing all of it, but he's like, hey, you can help. You can be involved. You're in on this thing, too. Listen to Paul explain this. Uh, You know this passage. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen. For, let's keep reading, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Like the whole reason for this rescue mission was to get you back to a point where you can do good. Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's just setting you up for good. Like he's putting you in the right spots at the right times. And you get to participate. An older friend of mine, she's in her, she's in her 80s. I think she's 84 now. She sent me uh, this email a couple years ago. I loved it. She tells the story of a, that concert pianist who was scheduled to perform and This little boy sneaks on stage and he starts playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. All these people sitting out in front and he's plunking it out, you know, one one finger at a time and the great pianist hears it and comes up behind them. And he sat down and he whispered into the child's ear, keep playing, keep playing. And the, uh, the master started adding an impressive bass accompaniment with his left hand and then... um reached out the other arm around the boy and added an obligato with his right hand. And the two pianists performed an amazing work of art. And the audience stood to a roaring ovation. Friends, you're just plunking out your little notes time, time. And Jesus is including you in his masterpiece. His provision... It's not only proactive, it is cooperative. He lets you in on it. Awesome. The risen Lord provides proactively, cooperatively, and lastly, generously. When you hear the word generous, what comes to mind? Certainly not Ebenezer Scrooge. He's the opposite, right? Stingy. Think of the opposite of Ebenezer Scrooge. Generous. Is that not what we see here in verses 11 and 12? I mean, here's the Lord of the universe cooking breakfast for the 11 guys that just formerly had abandoned him. 
They haven't done jack squat since they abandoned him. Except for a coward in fear behind closed doors. And here they couldn't even fish right. I mean, the one thing they did know how to do, they couldn't do. I, no offense to them, but I can put myself in this category. There's just a bunch of losers. They are not ending up on Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of the Year. They're losers. And Jesus loves them. And he serves them. And he's kind to them. He feeds them. He says, come to failures and to doubters. He eats with them. I know for us, eating is just about fuel. But in the first century context, eating was about fellowship. This is, if you wanted to see something neat, turn to Revelation chapter 3 real quick. And I want to show you this. Revelation also written by John, by the way, interestingly. Go to chapter 3, verse 20. And look at this familiar passage, and I want you to understand it in this context about how a meal communicates meaningful relationship. He's speaking to the church at Laodicea, and they are on the outside of things. In fact, uh, they are so carnal, so worldly, that he says, you make me sick. I want to throw you up out of my mouth. Like That's some pretty strong language. But notice what he says in verse 20. Even though... You guys are rebelling against me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm on the outside. You guys are on the inside. Here's, here's what I want. I'm standing. I want to be on the inside. And here's, this is what it looks like for me to come in on the inside. This is what it is for me to re-enter relationship. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. Mules communicate meaningful fellowship. Jesus is generously saying, we're still in this. We're all good. That's why communion is so important, friends. You're partaking of just that little bit of, of bread and juice, and you're being reminded that he's still good with you. You're still on speaking terms. You're still at the family table. You're still in. He's just generous. And guess what? The only thing that qualifies you for that communion meal is the confession that you're not worthy to be part of the communion meal. I love that about the baptisms today because every one of those people weren't up there because they thought, I'm so worthy. They were up there saying, like, I needed to die to myself and I needed Jesus' life and his alone. Like, the, the only qualification for fellowship is just realizing, like, how much fellowship we actually need. And he's providing it. And he does it abundantly. I love that God is not just saying, all right, here's the bare minimum. But it's like, all right, we've got 152 more of these fish if you want some more. It just never runs out. It's extravagant. I love that. He's generous. I hope you note this because I want you to see it as a contrast to the way that this world operates. The world is not generous to you, friends. It will chew you up. It will spit you out. It wants to consume. I love the lines in Screwtape Letters where the elder uh, demon, Screwtape, is, is trying to convince Wormwood 
uh, of how to, to best derail the patient, the Christian. He's trying to derail him. And in the greater context, what he's trying to get him to do is to, to lull him into to, to seasons um, or to be frustrated at seasons of life. But he says something really interesting in the middle of this that I find is fascinating. He, he starts complaining about the enemy. Now, you need to know this. The enemy to a demon is, is God. So here the enemy is referring to, to God. This is, this is what he says. He says, the, it may surprise you to learn that in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he, that is God, relies on the, the troughs, the low times, even more than the peaks. And some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs, hard times, than anyone else. And he, the reason is this, and this is where things pick up. He says, to us, talking about to the demon world, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He, talking about God, really does want to fill the universe with lots of little loathsome replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can become food. He wants servants who can become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Friends, following the Lord Jesus is full and flowing over. You may think that your best life is found in pursuing your goals, your dreams, starting at your tombstone and working back and figuring out what you want and then organizing your career and your family and your ambitions all around that. But let me just go ahead and give you the heads up. The Bible says that the wages of such sinful rebellion, the wages of living for your own self, is nothing other than death. That's a terrible paycheck. Eternal separation from God to constantly pursue your own way. And it begins now. It is soul-sucking to pursue your own life, wish, dreams. And not live for the full, free, abundant, generous, overflowing God who has revealed Himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. So His provision is generous. The risen Jesus provides. Two questions for you. One, for those of you who have yet to come to Him, to confess Him as Lord, to believe in Him alone for salvation, would you not come to Him today? Would you withstand this generosity forever? He's made it known to you so clearly, so fully in Jesus. He's He's died on your behalf. He's risen again. He, he offers life and life abundant. Come to Him. And for those of you who are already in Christ, would you, not, would you not let the text do its work and encourage you in your following Him by faith now? No, you're not enough. But He is. 
And the whole reason he's reminding you of your insufficiency today is so that you would more fully embrace his. That's how we close today. Reflecting on the sufficiency and satisfaction we find in Jesus. I'm going to ask the musicians if they will even at this time come up. I say to those of you who are in Christ, sing, remind yourselves, remind one another that we serve the risen provider. And for those of you who are not in Christ, would you listen out for what you could have if you would just rely on him now by faith? Let me pray and then we'll stand and sing. Father, honor your son through the Spirit's working in these final moments of this service and song. Work in the hearts of those who know not that sufficiency in Jesus saved them. And for those who know it, may they be satisfied afresh in what their risen Lord has provided. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.